Look, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 4, in verse, really, 31 through 32, we're going to just close out this chapter, turn the corner to chapter 5. In some ways, we have some of the best parts of the back end of this book before us, how to walk in the Spirit. In chapter 5, we've got a whole section in there on wives and husbands and what God's Word says about the family. We come into chapter 6, there's a whole section in there regarding parents and children. I'm so thankful that we have a word from God on that. And then in chapter 6, of course, there's another section for those who are employers, employees uh, here identified as slaves and masters. And then that whole section on the whole armor of God that we would be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. But as it is, we close out this text and the final and fifth illustration, I'll walk you back through that. But look at 431 and 32. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I've titled the message From Vice to Virtue, but as we begin, how do you respond? You, as we come to the Lord's table, how do you respond when people hurt you? I mean, how do you respond when an investor takes your, your money, if you will. Or when things go south in a ministry. Or maybe, and I wouldn't say maybe, a number of you have been sued here. How do you respond to someone who sues you? Or when maybe even a business partner makes decisions that hurt you? Or someone takes property or changes the lines, if you will, to what was originally agreed upon. I mean, how do you respond when your name is slandered, even unjustly, and when your opinion is not sought, maybe even when your opinion is overlooked? Uh, Someone said, to live above with the saints we love, that will be glory, But to live below with the saints we know, that's another story. I think there's truth to that. And so this morning we turn back to Ephesians 4 and really we're studying some of the most practical day-by-day truths of our faith. We've seen that in 4 and it will continue in 5 and 6. As your eyes glance towards 4, you remember we're talking about the worthy walk And then we're talking in verse 22 where he told us to put off the old life or the old self. And then he told us in 424 to put on the new self. In other words, you were transformed by the grace of God and what you confess and what I confess ought to look different than the manner in which we first lived because Christ Jesus made us alive. And there's some rich, deep, theology in that put off the old self, what you once were, put on the new self, rich, deep theology, and yet he 
follows from that in verse 25 through 32, and he gives us five practical illustrations how to do that. And we said each of these illustrations, for the most part, have a negative prohibition set alongside a positive command. And then thirdly, we just said there's a purpose attached to it. So you got a prohibition, a command that's positive, and a purpose that is attached to it. Now we've looked at the first four, tell the truth, don't be angry, steal no more. And last week we talked about words that build up. And this week we come to the fifth and final illustration where Paul's going to exhort you as we walk into the Lord's table to go from vice to virtue, from vice to virtue. And so he follows this pattern here that he names a list of vices and he said you need to, he says to put them all away or it's like verse 22, to take off uh, the old man. He gives us these lists of vices that can't be part of our life. Then he comes back and he states in verse 32 a series of virtues that we've got to put on. Here's what you got to take off, these six vices. Here's three virtues that you need to put on. And then he's going to attach at the end of it a purpose to it. So let's talk here and just allow this to minister to you as we come to the Lord's table. Here is the first thought here, is you must put away, put away the vices of the old man. In other words, here are six vices that wreck the unity, that wreck the purity in our church and in our home. In other words, they can't be named amongst us here at Grace Church of the Valley, just as I was singing, I was hearing your voice, and I'm thinking of the unity of this place, and I ever want that to continue. I want that to continue here. I want that to continue in our home, and we want to be change agents in our community. Well, Paul does say, listen, he'll get to that. There's some things you got to put on, but he says there's these items, these vices that as a new believer, as a believer, they can't be part of your life. One of the reasons they can't is look back at verse 24, 424. He told us to put on the new self. And, and in Christ, as a, as a believer, we're created, I love this, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, once we got saved, we were given the spirit that we were created, therefore, for righteousness. And as he mentions their holiness, that we'd be separate from whatever we were saved out of, according to 4, 17 and 18. You say, well, what are these vices? Let's just dive right in. And I'm going to move quick here, okay? I'm going to fly high, okay? Some of these things we've touched on, so I'm going to fly, and if it sticks, then confess it, and then I'm going to finish with the three positive virtues to put on, okay? The first vice that you got to put away is, put your nose back in verse 30. He says, let all, and I'll just read them in a row, bitterness, wrath, and anger, the thought would be towards the end there, to put them all away. He mentions first here, bitterness. In other words, as you walk with Christ, as you put on 
the new man, this you must take off. And what you must take off is bitterness. Originally in scripture, if I even just said the word, you would associate that with a bitter taste. And that would be true. And it would be true in scripture. Something, if you will, that's bitter. That's the ideal of the word even means sharp. And some translations, it's the ideal of a pugent smell. But then metaphorically, it became a bitter spirit. And I think we would understand that. Bitterness is a bitter spirit. It is a resentment that arises in the heart to fail to reconcile with another person. When you become bitter, you, you, just, you have no desire to reconcile. Why? Because your heart's bitter. You've turned bitter. You've turned, if you will, harsh. In fact, it says of Simon in Acts 8.23, where there the writer said, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. The gall of bitterness. And uh, that would be almost the, the gall kind of referred to the fluids and the bile within the stomach of someone. And he told Simon, you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Bitterness, beloved, and I should ask you, is a resentful attitude. And as we come to the Lord's table, this must be put away. Paul used that word, pikria in the Greek, in Romans 3.14, where he was describing the depravity of men, and he said their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It is to be, I would think, hard in your hearts, but harsh in your speech. You use sharp words. You've become cold. You've become resentful. You've become harsh maybe even cynical. And Paul's saying, listen, beloved, you've got to put that away. Let me see if I could just zero in. It is an unforgiving spirit that refuses to be reconciled. I hope that's not you. You will hurt your heart, you will hurt your home, and you will hurt this church. Just have an unforgiving spirit, and you're not going to reconcile with someone. Bitterness, beloved, harbors resentment, specifically a resentment against a past act that took place against you. You've become resentful of someone. Bitterness is a brooding, it's a seething anger that holds a grudge. I know this, beloved, the writer of Hebrews said this 12 in 12:15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no, and he calls it there, a root of bitterness that it springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So he says here, this list of vice, you need to put away all bitterness. It could be toward another brother. It could be towards another sister in this body. It could be towards family, family member. It could be towards a coach, okay? It could be towards a boss. It could be towards an investor. It could be towards a spouse, maybe even an ex-spouse. You, me, you got to put away all bitterness, okay? Secondly, though, would you look again at the text? Put away all bitterness. And then he mentions two words that are 
somewhat similar, but they're different. He says, and wrath and anger. So the second vice first. He says, all wrath. You say, what is wrath? Well, the, the word thumos, it means rage. Paul is talking here, beloved, about an explosive anger. Uh, that maybe I would say a hot anger. Wrath as we know it, according to Galatians 5.20, is a deed of the flesh. You've got to put away wrath. and In other words, anger. In fact, the word, some of the, the etymology of it literally means to burn. In other words, you and I cannot be marked by an uncontrolled outburst of anger. In fact, it's interesting, nine times in the Old Testament, this word literally was packed in with the word nose, okay? You you say nose, it's the ideal of snorting, if you will, out of control. Sometimes, man, that guy was fuming mad. That's the word here. He's talking about a burning anger. He's talking about a burning rage. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs 27.4 that wrath is cruel, but anger is overwhelming. That's the thought. You become wrathful, if you will, at a spouse, at a child, at an employee, at a business partner, to a family member, and you might have the temptation to explode. You can't do that. If our church is going to be unified as your shepherd, does Paul with the church at Ephesus, there's some things that cannot mark us. In other words, we can't penetrate the community if this stuff is part of our life. So he says there's no place in the Christian life, I just wrote a few words down, to go ballistic. There's no place in the Christian life to say, man, that guy went off. There's no place in the Christian life where we would say, boy, he or she flew off the rails. So here's what Paul's saying. Listen, you want to put off the old man, put on the new man, but putting off the old man, you're going to do away with all bitterness and wrath. And then there's a third vice. Would you look at it and I'll explain it. It's there in verse 31, all bitterness, all wrath, and now a different word, and anger. This is the word, the common Greek term, orge, if you will. And you you say, well, what's the difference between wrath and now anger? You might think that it may appear to be more controlled, this anger, than the previous word of wrath. But what the writer is saying here, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Here is an anger that is deep down. It's not explosive. That's more that second vice. Here in this third vice, there is a deep down anger, seething, if you will, a boiling heart that is hard, that is destructive, that leads to disunity. In fact, this could be in your children in elementary school could be in your child who's in junior high and, and or high school. He says there can't be any of that. Now, we know when you see that term there, again in verse 31, anger, that anger is an attribute of God. 
We know that. In fact, if you glance back at 4.26, look there. Be angry. That's a righteous anger that we spoke about. But do not sin. So God often manifests a holy anger, a righteous anger. But I said most of the time, ours is not a righteous anger. It's often a sinful anger. And certainly in the context, Paul is talking about a sinful, deep, seething, boiling at the core of our being. He says, that can't be part of our church. This can't be part of your home. You have no right in your home, if you will, to become bitter or wrathful or angry. In fact, this subject is so serious that Jesus said, but I say to you, 522 of Matthew, that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Listen, anger may be the, the conversation on talk shows. Anger may be, you know, in some measure you're trying to prove something that it comes out. But listen, this kind of sinful anger can't be part of the deep down part of our heart. So you got to put away all bitterness, all wrath, all anger. And usually these lead if there is a progression here, to a fourth vice. Look at it. Do we use this word today? Put away all clamor. Clamor, at least from the ESV. The word means here uh, clamor. Do we, do we use that? Hey, that guy spoke with clamor or she spoke with clamor. What, you say, what does the word mean? He, it means shouting and screaming. That the thought here is Paul is saying this is a public outburst between you and someone else or you somewhere else, but it is a screaming. In fact, it was used in Acts 7.57 of shouting and frenzy of an angry mob. And so here is bitterness or wrath or anger and now clamor, if you will, a screaming outburst, and I wrote this in my notes, that everyone hears. I think some people want to do this. They want to be heard, or you want to file your grievance, and you're going to shout. That can lead to a fifth vice. Look at it. I told you I'd move fast. It says there, and you put away clamor, and then it says slander, slander. Blasphemia is the word. You say, what is slander? It's a desire to hurt someone with your words. When you can't accomplish what you want to accomplish, you can slander someone, and you and I would say, defame one's reputation. Paul says, listen, in, in this church at Ephesus, Grace Church of the Valley in the body of Christ, you cannot blaspheme someone's name by abusing it and slandering them maliciously. And of course, we would associate that with a false report. You'll break a church. You'll break a church. You'll destroy a church through this kind of thing. I've seen it over the years and it's, 
It's malicious. And that doesn't excuse leaders in their relationship with one another. I've seen loud matches uh, in, in specific leadership meetings. He says, you can't slander. Say, where does slander come from? I think I read last week in Mark 7, for from within, because from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, big ones, right? Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, and what? Does it say there? Slander, bottom left corner. Where does that come from? It comes out of the inside, if you will. And Paul, beloved, listen, I'm pleading with you. I don't have anything specific in my mind. But you, you know if the Spirit of God is telling you, you can't slander people, whether it be in your home, whether it be in our church, whether it be in our community. It doesn't mean you don't speak the truth in love, but you can't make up a false report. And then if that's not all, look how he finishes that vice list in verse 31. He says, along with all malice. Malice. You say, what is malice? Here's the progression. It is an intent to harm someone. It's frightening. Even to the life of a believer. You say, can a believer do this? Yes. These are in the present tense. In other words, you get down a road so far, it can lead to malice. You have a desire for someone else to experience pain. You have a desire to injure another. Malice is a mean-spirited, vicious attitude. It's wickedness. It's evil, Paul says to us. So I, I try to think if there's any rhyme or order to the way he mentioned these, and I, I don't really think so. He's got some list in other passages of the New Testament, and some of these issues, like here, we looked at wrath and anger. If you look over in another list, he mentions anger, then wrath. And so I think we're, we're in a list here, but if there is some thought, the inner sins internally of bitterness and wrath and anger will inevitably lead to the outward sins of clamor and slander and malice. Listen, beloved, Paul just says, you got to take that stuff off. You're in Christ. You got to take it off like an old garment. You can't just relax. You can't just be passive in these areas. You got to do business with your soul as a new man as I do. Here seems to be the progression. Bitterness, a hard heart, breaks out like a bad disease. It becomes wrathful. It doesn't stop. Wrath turns into a monster. It moves into a deep, settled, seething, boiled anger, which if not confessed, gives way to clamor. You begin to shout, if you will, that leads to slander. You ruin a reputation of another that can lead then to malice and even, obviously in the context here, disunity. I mean, I just, I, I don't like to, it's hard to kind of preach this, but we want to, you know, we've always started that we're going to just go through books. I doubt that many pastors want to speak on this as, as a, an encouragement to you, but here it is. We've got to put all this stuff away. 
In fact, Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.1, put away, and notice some of the words there. I think it's up on the screen. All malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then you know the next verse. So how do, how do, I, do, how do I do that, pastor? Put it all away, all malice, all deceit. All, well, if you want to look, 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, like newborn babes long for the what? The pure milk of the what? The word of God. The way that you put these things off is you take them off because you're in Christ and you replace those kind of thoughts with the pure milk of the word of God. What you fix your mind on is who you will become. And what you place your focus on is going to determine what happens into your heart. And if you nurse an unforgiving, unthankful, cynical event that happened in your life that someone had done to you, some are more small, others, you know, are huge. But you just got to be careful that you don't dwell on this stuff. You say, well, pastor... um, I do dwell on it. What would you tell me? (laughs) I do dwell on it. And every time, every week, maybe for some of you every day, I cannot get out of my mind what they have done. And I think I just gently would say to you, you need to replace those kind of thoughts and attitudes and heart with the Word of God so that the Word of God becomes the controlling principle of your life and my life, or I'm telling you, You let a root of bitterness get in your heart, get in your marriage, get in your family, get in there with your kids, you're going to defile people in that way. So beloved, listen, if there's anything in your heart and you come to the Lord's table, you watch carefully for that. Some of you, I want to encourage, do some spring cleaning. We're almost in the summer with our weather. Listen to Colossians, it's up there. You must... Same thing, right? Put them all away. And here's the words. Anger and wrath and malice and slander. And if you linked it back to 429, obscene talk from your mouth. Ah, beloved. It just can't be part of who we are. And you know that. I don't need to preach that hard. What's going to make our church unique is our holiness. What's going to make our church unique and glorify God is when these things aren't part of our life. But listen, it's not enough just to take off these vices. You've got to appropriate three virtues, okay? And so I bring you from what you must in the negative prohibition put off in terms of vice. Secondly, to the very positive command, put on the virtues of the new man. Look at verse 32. Be, I like that word, it's an action verb. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another. So he matches those six vices with these three virtues that you've got to put on, okay? And the lead thought there in verse 32 is the verb be. You need to be. The thought is kind, tenderhearted. The word tenderhearted is compassionate and forgiving one another. And here it's present imperative. And it means that because this, 
is a present imperative. Some of you may not be as you even hear me this morning. In other words, it's entirely likely at the church that he wrote to in Ephesus that they weren't putting this into practice. So listen, because this is the word of God, by the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is going to penetrate your heart and my heart even now. We need to put these things on, and it could be in some cases that they're not being put on. You say, well, what are they, Scott? Well, look at the first virtue, verse 32, is to be kind to one another. Now, there's much to say here, but it just means to be useful, to, to be kind I wish I could say more, but that's what the word means. It means to be useful. It means to be beneficial. It means to be kind to one another. So it it obviously is the opposite of malice and bitterness is you need to be kind. And kindness takes the initiative to respond to another, to benefit them, and to help another. Now, I would just say this, that as believers, we're the recipients of God's kindness in our salvation. In fact, look back in the book of Ephesians, go back to chapter 2, in verse 7. Remember, he said there in 2.7, that with a view to the future of our salvation, that in the coming ages he might show, demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace, here's the word, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, in the ages to come, his kindness is going to be revealed. His kindness in the context to save lost sinners who were dark and disobedient and enslaved to sin and facing the wrath of God. God moved into your life. He caused you to be born again. He made you alive so that in the future, you're going to be put on display. But what's put on display is not you, not me, not my effort, not your effort, not my works, not your works. But here in the ages to come, he's going to show the riches of his grace in kindness towards you. Listen, if you're a believer, and many of you are, you've been the recipient of his kindness. When Paul said in Romans 2.4, do you presume, he said, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So not only is salvation a result of his kindness to us, but even his patience demonstrated God's kindness that leads you to repentance. I mean, so here's what we're saying. Here's what the word's saying. God is kind. He was kind to you. He was kind to me in salvation. You, you would quote with me, can you finish Psalm 34, 8? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is, what? Does it say there? Yeah, it does. It says it's good. If you, if you want to look there at the language there, oh, taste and see that the Lord is kind. It's the same. He's good. He's kind. He's been kind to you. So here's the point. Here's your response. Take off those vices and put on this quality here, kindness. I remind you that kindness in Galatians, fruit of the Spirit. 
Not dissensions and factions and immorality and slander. But when you and I are walking in the Spirit, out of our heart is going to be kindness. You say, but, but Scott, how could I be kind even to the people that have hurt me? Well, I just would take you back to the Scripture in Luke 6.35. I think that love your, what? Enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be, I like this, sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and even to evil men. And so here we're called to be kind. Certainly I don't need to remind you, but I will of the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, you could probably quote it with me, love is patient and love is what? Kind. Say, what do you mean kind? Useful to another, beneficial to another, not taking out acts of aggression, not getting a pound of flesh, not telling someone off, not shouting loudly. You're actually going to take your enemy, and it could be even in this church, and you're going to be kind to them. So rather than being bitter, rather than being filled with wrath and anger and slander and clamor and malice, be kind towards one another. Can we do that? Renew your mind, renew your heart, look back and see what he's done for you. But there's a second virtue, okay, look at it. It's right there, be kind to one another. And then it mentions this word, tender-hearted. It's kind of an interesting word. I always like this word when I was uh, at seminary. Tender-hearted is the word for compassion. It's translated tender-hearted here, but it's, it's the word splonknos. And somebody who is tender-hearted or compassion, the word literally, physically meant that you feel something in your bowels, And so it came to be known as the bowels of compassion, okay? In other words, Paul is saying here, you need to be kind. Put the second virtue on. You need to be tenderhearted, that welling up from your innermost part of your being, you need to be compassionate rather than angry and even wrathful. In fact, that word in the New Testament was used of God and Christ in their mercy to sinners. I'm just, this one always catches me. In Matthew 9, I'll just show you where the word was used. In 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There was a feeling of pain inside, internally, a feeling of distress. Like if you would have went down to the rally that was held for life down in Florida, excuse me, in Fresno this Tuesday, that it would just break your heart that there's something about these kids that's Holocaust-like, and we, we want to be involved. We want to share the gospel. We want to tell those young mothers that there's another alternative, 
But I guess what I'm getting to you is that Jesus just felt it in his internal being, if you will. And in another passage, it's there. He went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Just, you say, Scott, how do we get that? You got to pray for it. You got to look at the word. You got to memorize the scripture. You got to take off the old man. You got to put on the new man. It could be that some of you are saying, Pastor, that's real trivial because if you knew what happened to me, you might not think this. And uh, knowing some of the situations that you've been through, I would probably say, I understand the angst of that. But here, I'm telling you, that doesn't mean justice can't be done in unique circumstances. But when Jesus came to the crowds, at least, he had compassion on them. Even his enemies, he, he wanted to be kind to all of them. Matthew 10, you know it, as the Samaritan, he, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Remember, the religious leaders went like this. They saw the guy, they're walking, oh man, who is that guy? And they're just walking all the way around the guy. And then the other religious leader came by and he saw the guy at the pulpit and he walked all the way around him, but not this guy. He saw him. He had compassion on him. And, and by the way, compassion doesn't feel it. It does something. It says he bound up his wounds, you know it. He poured oil and wine on them. He set him on his animal. He brought him to the inn. He took care of him. His compassion moved him to action. That maybe the best part is the prodigal in Luke 15. He arose, did the prodigal. He came to his father. You know the account. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I just, can we have this heart? And he felt compassion. The father did. Splunkna in his midsection for his son, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Listen, I, I just tell you, as a shepherd here, if we can take off these old vices and put on kindness and compassion or tenderheartedness, it would change our life. Listen, bitterness, retaliation, anger must give way to people who are kind and tenderhearted. No wonder. Peter said this, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, I love that, brotherly love, and he says, a tender heart and a humble mind. There's Splunkna again, it's a tender heart, and I'm just asking you as I ask my own heart, is this you? Is this you? I hope so. Because if not, bitterness is going to ruin you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt this body if it happens here. So he says, be kind, tenderhearted. But the third and final virtue, I think maybe preeminent of all. Look what it says in 32 there. It says, forgiving. And it does say one another. Now, there's different words for forgiveness. This has the 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 meaning of a gracious forgiveness. But forgiveness is the letting go of sin. That's what the word means. It's the, it's, the, it's the sending away of sin. 
It's the, it's the dismissal of sin against you. So you're going to forgive one another if somebody has sinned against you. But you might say, oh, but pastor, you don't know my ex-spouse. <laughs> Maybe. But you got to forgive. You don't know my business partner. You don't know what he did to me, possibly, but you need to forgive that person. It doesn't mean there's not means if legal action is needed. I understand that. But here in your heart, you've, especially in this body and in your home, you've got to forgive one another. You might even be saying to me as a family, you don't know what my spouse did to me. And, and what's done is you haven't forgiven them, and sometimes it's eight and 12 and 20 years ongoing, and you're in the same roof, under the same roof, and a wedge and a root of bitterness just from the counseling I've done. Not so, I don't want to say here, okay? You need to come to me, but that wedge I've seen over the years can create such a distance. Listen, if there's any wedge in your heart you need to fix it today. I just would encourage you to hear because you need to forgive. So, beloved, you see this? There's a prohibition. Here's what to take off. There's a positive command. Here's three virtues to put on. And then the final third dominating point is the purpose attached. The purpose attached. You say, well, why would I forgive? And why should I do that? Look at the text. Verse 32 you forgive one another, this is the most important thing, as God in Christ, what? Gave you. Let me just say it this way, just as freely and graciously, if you will, God forgave you for your sins, you are to forgive another in the offense committed against you. That's what he means there. That's the, the grace that's manifested here. In fact, look back just for a moment in chapter 2, verse 3. Um, he says there, among two, we all lived, you know, in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead... In our sins, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In fact, look over at 2.14. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both, us Jew and Gentile, one. And he has broken down the barrier. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, okay? That he might, verse 16, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, you, you've got to forgive others as the Lord Jesus forgave you. You remember, beloved, certainly, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, when Peter asked the question in Matthew 18, 21, how many times, Lord, how many times do I forgive? And I think Peter said, is it right up to, did he say up to seven times? And the Lord corrected him, and he says, no, up to what? Seventy times seven. And I, I'm just convinced, you've probably heard me say that before, 
So what do you mean? Is he trying to go 490 times? No. Okay, and then 491, it's okay? No. I just think he's saying that every time that thought comes back into your mind, what someone did against you, you just need to keep and continually bring it to the foot of the cross and keep forgiving because you're going to battle in your own mind what happened and the hope there is this continual forgiveness. In other words, it has, in God's eyes, no limits. Do you remember? I won't read it to you. You can write it down if you want. The parable in Matthew 18, 21 that came right after when Jesus set up the 70 times 7. It's the parable of the servant. Do you remember that one servant? He owned the king. The Bible says in Matthew 18, 10,000 talents. And uh, you say, how much is that, Scott? Well, it's a lot. I can tell you what it means, and I will. In other words, this man, this servant, owed the king 10,000 talents, which was an inconceivable figure. A talent in that day was 6,000 days wages. So it would take the servant in the parable 19 years working six days a week to earn one talent And this guy owed 10,000 talents. You get the idea. It's impossible to pay back. But he begged the king for mercy. And the king forgave the man's debt. And the king, obviously, in Jesus' story is God. And we are the servant. And the thought would be is that we owe a debt for our sin that we cannot pay and our attempts to pay off that debt incurred by sin would be as feeble as the servant paying a few cents towards a multi, multi, multi-million dollar debt. But in the story, you remember, the king's kindness was lost on a servant who went out, did that servant, who was forgiven an insurmountable debt and he found one of his own fellow servants who owed him a much smaller amount of money. The one who had been forgiven 10,000 talents, do you remember, began to choke his friend, demanding that he repay this much smaller debt. And if you're taking the parable literally, it was a three-month debt. And the friend begged for mercy just as the servant had, but the servant refused to extend mercy and threw his friend in jail for not paying the debt. It's, it's unbelievable, right? And when the king heard, the king is God, that what a servant had done, he turned his servant over to the torturers until he repaid all that he owed the king. And he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And it said the master, the parable, was angry and he put him in prison until he should pay the full amount of what he was owed. Say, Scott, how do you make sense of that? Well, I just, he, he didn't put him over to the executioners. He put him over to the torturers. And it could be a, likened to Hebrews chapter 12 that when you have an unforgiving spirit that the Lord's going to discipline you. 
You say, well, it's okay, Scott. I'm just, uh, I'm not angry, but I would say, yeah, you're indifferent. And if you're indifferent towards another, you need to make sure that your indifference turns from indifference to kindness and to prayer. I'm not saying this is easy, okay? And obviously, we don't gain forgiveness by forgiving others. Rather, we forgive others because he's already forgiven you, right? That's the point, right? Even an injustice, he's already of others that commit against you. Listen, when you release the wrongdoer, listen to me, from your own vengeance, you cut the cancer out of your life. You set the prisoner free and you discover that the prisoner you freed was yourself. You don't want to get a bitter heart. You don't want to become angry at a coach. You don't want to become angry at a teacher. You don't want to come, become so angry that it becomes a root of bitterness. No, we're to put those things all aside, if you will, and we're here to put on kindness, compassion, and a forgiving spirit. And what's the motive? Well, look again at Ephesians. The motive is real clear. As God in Christ, what? Forgave you. Listen, this is not easy. I think I've told you one time of a man, years, years ago, who told me such horrible things on the phone that I won't even tell you what he told me. It's just vile. Vile, if you will, coming out of the inside. And the only reason I, the only way that I could ever overcome his statements was to pray for him. Often. Lord, change his heart. And I think I've told you that, praise God, as he was in the hospital suffering from issues in his own heart physically, he called me and he asked for my forgiveness. And I just remember what I told him, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here. I, he, he, was, I, he was very sincere, I think. I said, thank you for calling me. I already forgave you. I already forgave you. In my heart, I had already forgiven him. He needed to probably, in that sense, reconcile with me, but I had already forgiven him so it wouldn't eat me alive. Do you understand? So it wouldn't eat me and allow a root of bitterness to come deep inside my heart. Listen, we're going to go to the Lord's table and whatever you might need to do business before God, and it could be something you need to take off. It could be that you're just saying, I want to activate being kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving just as God in Christ has forgiven me.